This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today, I'm going to present, because uh, a lot of folks in here are medical students, I'm going to present a clinical case that was a really challenging clinical case for me, perhaps one of the most challenging clinical cases that I've encountered throughout my career. And I'm going to tell it in a way that if you're not in medicine, you should be able to follow it okay. Okay, so um, kind of in that story, I'm going to pivot out of it, and I'm going to try to, hopefully not too awkwardly, uh, weave in some philosophical and theological themes having to do with patient care, uh, as well as some other philosophical and theological issues. Okay, so I'll get started. Uh, so the story is about someone by the name of Brian, and Brian's 45 years old. He's a, um, by all accounts, he's, he's very successful. Uh, he owns his own business. He, uh, he's married. He has three children. Um, everyone that I talked to about him during this setting has always told me that he was someone of tremendous grit, worked hard, um, took nothing for granted, and really loved his family. And he was in excellent health. He had no previous medical history whatsoever. Uh, he's never really on any medications, with exception to some sinus infections in the past. So everything was good up until Thursday. Uh, on Thursday, he developed a headache. And he's had some headaches in the past, usually associated with sinus infections, so he didn't think too much of it. But then he woke up on Friday, and his head was just pounding. It was significantly worse than it had been the day prior, and he had never really had a headache like this before. So uh, being the determined person that he is, he had a meeting that day, and he went to his meeting. But he had difficulty concentrating because the headache was so severe. So uh, he just decides he can't make it to the second meeting that day. But instead, he's going to uh, go to urgent care and see if they can do something about this headache. So he goes, and they say, yeah, it's probably a sinus infection. So they give him an antibiotic, and um, he starts taking it. And he had agreed on that Friday to drive his high school senior, who ran cross-country, um, to a cross-country meet. That was going to take place on Saturday. So uh, he's a man of commitment. So he said, I'm going to follow through with that, although he didn't feel well. But he got his son. He drove from Greenville, South Carolina, to Boone, North Carolina. Uh, it's kind of a, if you've ever done that, it's through the Blue Ridge. It's a beautiful drive, but very windy and, uh, you know, all the way through the mountains there. So he ends up making it there. He gets to the hotel. He's exhausted. He falls asleep right away. It's Friday night. He wakes up uh, Saturday morning, and he has this tremendous weight to him. Not like the weight that you feel of an upcoming test, the impending doom of your board exams or something like that, but a physical weight, a tremendous weight, as if the laws of nature had changed or was kind of pushing him from above down into the earth. Um, so he was able to somehow muster enough strength to make it to the cross-country meet. But when he got there, he was so, uh, so weak and felt so heavy that he couldn't stand upright. So he had to lay flat on the ground. So he was just laying there, and people came up to him and said, you know, you know, Brian, are you doing okay? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, uh, I'll be okay. So uh, he doesn't see much of the race, but again, he made a commitment to his nephew, who's at App State, that he's going to uh, bring him out to lunch or dinner or something like that after the cross-country meet. So he does it. Uh, he doesn't remember a whole lot about the dinner, but the nephew states that he was saying things that just didn't quite make sense. And then... 
Brian finished up the dinner and drove home alone through the mountains. He remembers the drive a little bit. He was driving, he had difficulty with perception. So how fast he was going, uh, how far away a car was to his right or left, and had a little bit of difficulty uh, figuring out how to get home, even with directions. So he's having some issues. He stopped to get a vanilla milkshake, thinking maybe his blood sugar was low. And he remembers tasting the milkshake, and it, it tasted uh, metallic. He thought someone um, you know, did something to his milkshake, and he's very disturbed by this. So he gets home. It's Saturday. He doesn't remember much of the day when he gets home. And then Sunday, he gets up, and uh, he's with his uh, family. Uh, he doesn't remember much of the morning. In the afternoon, he's watching football, and he starts to have some involuntary movements of his right upper limb. And um, he doesn't remember this, but his... his uh, I think two, two of his children said, uh, you know, Dad, what are you doing with your arm? And he, he played it off to saying, well, I'm just stretching. So then uh, later his wife gets home um, with one of their other kids, and uh, they're all at the dinner table. And uh, he's eating a, a hamburger, but he has no bun on it or anything like that. And this is very unusual for him. He's holding it like this, but it's just the patty. And uh, then all of a sudden he, he becomes very slow, difficulty answering questions, and then he has a more violent convulsion. He has a, you know, a seizure uh, for which the, uh, the details are sparse. I don't know what it looked like, what we call the semiology of the event was. But uh, his wife, he remembers his wife yelling, call 911. So the ambulance comes and brings him to one of our sister hospitals. And um, all this is unknown to me uh, until I come into the hospital on Monday morning to start my seven-day shift. So I came in on Monday morning. And when I got there, uh, there was an EEG for me to read that was STAT, so I looked at it, and on it I saw that there were four electrographic seizures over a period of 30 minutes. Uh, so that was very alarming to me, and I realized that um, this is what it looked like here. So there is some rhythmic movement, uh, some rhythmic activity more in the anterior leads here, so this kind of, these rhythmic waveforms uh, more kind of frontal lobe and paramedian. And uh, so there's about, there's four of these events. So this is very concerning to me. So I, I open up his chart and I start looking. I see that he's had a brain MRI done. So I take a look at his, at his uh, brain MRI. And there are some abnormalities. So uh, this is a type of MRI, it's a T2 uh, flare imaging. And uh, so I take a look at this, and it, to me, it's, it's alarming. There's some issues here. So in the uh, anterior medial frontal lobe, there's this T2 hyperintensity, uh, and that's concerning to me. So there's an area maybe we'd say of inflammation in the brain in the anterior medial frontal lobe in very close proximity to uh, just uh, close to there is the cingulate, uh, the cingulate gyrus, um, or the anterior cingulate cortex, uh, which is an important part of the brain for cognition. There's also another lesion here uh, in the uh, right inferior frontal lobe. And then um, there's also one here in the superior left uh, paramedial uh, frontal lobe, or paramedian frontal lobe there. Uh, and there are a bunch of other ones too. So these little areas in the brain uh, for simplicity, I'll say inflammation in the brain. So I'm seeing some inflammation in the brain. Uh, they did a good job. They had started them on anti-seizure medicines. They did a lumbar puncture. So they, they did the LP. 
And uh, so that's when you get spinal fluid to see if there's signs of infection or if there's inflammation or, or what's going on. And so I looked at the cerebral spinal fluid results and they were normal. So uh, he also had a, a fever. So fever, headache, altered mental status, meningitis, right, until proven otherwise. So he was started on broad spectrum antimicrobial agents. And also there was some concern for what's called herpes simplex encephalitis. So they started him on acyclovir. Okay, so they did a great job. They did everything correct. Um, so that they did, a, they did a good job. He was at a different hospital. I jumped on, I saw him by telemedicine and I briefly spoke with him. He doesn't remember much of that. He just remembered, he says the only things he, he remembers from that encounter was that I looked too young to be a doctor, uh, which is, uh, I get that every day. Although I aged quite a bit over the last few years during the pandemic, so I, you know, um, so I'm starting to show my age, I think, but um, okay. So uh, he's, uh, I get on the telemedicine center. I said, we need to get you downtown immediately. You know, I'll talk to you when you get here, but I'm, we're gonna get an ambulance. We're gonna send you here immediately because you can't be over there. You need a neurologist to, to take care of you in person not knowing how bad this was going to get. Um, so he got into the ambulance and that's his last memory. He has no memories after this. Okay, so before he left, I, you know, I, he was already on uh, one anti-seizure medicine, uh, levetiracetam, which is Keppra. And then before he left, I added another anti-seizure medicine, Lacosamide. So he's on two anti-seizure medications at maximum dose, hoping that would hold him over. I also uh, had some thoughts about what this might be. I, maybe I'll ask the medical students, uh, based off of uh, what you've heard, what would be your initial uh, differential diagnosis? What do you think this could be? Could be strokes, strokes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I didn't show you the diffusion restriction, uh, the DWI images, so maybe if there was diffusion restriction, we would say that those are, are strokes. Um, and some of them did have diffusion restriction. CJD is a, is a consideration. CJD is a bit slower. It's a prion disease, it's a bit slower. Typically involves um, the, the stri you know, the kind of basal ganglia as well as you'll get some um, cortical ribboning. Um, kind of evolves over a period of weeks to months. So maybe a little too fast for that, but it's a good thought. I like it, I like it. What else? Initial onset of MS. Yeah, so he has these, um, Areas, uh, that's a good thought too. I would say that um, MS primarily involves the white matter and these are, these are gray matter lesions, but uh, MS can involve the gray matter. So that's a good thought too. Some sort of autoimmune encephalopathy? Yeah, so yeah, an autoimmune uh, encephalopathy or encephalitis, uh, that's a great idea. Um, I think infectious, even though his CSF looks okay, is still on the differential diagnosis, right? So sometimes uh, we call pleocytosis a rise in the inflammation occurs a bit later, so you can miss that initially. So good, I like it. That's a good differential diagnosis. Okay, so Brian gets to the hospital, and uh, you know, I walk in the room and I see him, and you know, oh, as doctors we walk in, we get kind of an initial impression just when you look at someone. A good doctor can just immediately kind of sense this person's sick or they're not sick. This may get bad or, or they look okay. A lot of doctors can kind of have an intuitive sense about that. Brian did not look good. He, uh, he was diaphoretic. He was, just had this vacant look. Where he was just staring off. And every few minutes, he just had some rhythmic movements in his right upper limb. So we hooked him up to a continuous EEG, and he was having uh, frequent seizures. Uh, 
one of the most profound things with him is he was uh, we call bradyphrenic. So bradyphrenia, it's an ancient Greek word, slowness of thought. He had a lot of difficulty just forming a sentence, forming a thought. Uh, just everything was so slow, okay? Uh, so Brian was losing capacities, memory, decision-making, forming thoughts, motor activity, awareness. He's quickly losing his capacities. And as a neurologist, I spend most of my day caring for patients with neurological impairments. So in the ICU, you know, ischemic strokes, uh, lack of blood flow going to the brain, hemorrhagic strokes in which you get uh, kind of a, a rupture of a blood vessel, so you get blood in the brain parenchyma, uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, seizures, okay, like with, uh, like with Brian. And then in the office, I don't do office uh, work anymore, but there's a lot of uh, conditions there where you start losing capacities, so ALS, ability to move your body, Huntington disease, abnormal movements, cognition, depression, uh, Parkinson's disease, you know, loss of mobility, Parkinson's disease, dementia. Uh, so you're losing these activities of daily living. And then things, you know, different types of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, frontal temporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, all these different types of dementia where you're losing capacities. So society, even if stated otherwise, often equates human dignity with functionality. So in society, we kind of idolize youth and independence and beauty and athleticism and whether you do CrossFit or not. Uh, you know, and this, uh, this ideal, uh, or so-called ideal, often makes the disabled feel marginalized and a burden to society. And we often treat them as such, even if we say that we don't. You know, I think as, a, uh, as someone who has students with me and around nurses and things, you know, when patients are in a rough spot and they can't comprehend what you're saying, sometimes you know, healthcare workers can be very rude to them because they know that they're not going to understand it or they're in a coma so they speak ill about the person or what they did that, that caused their hospitalization. So uh, this is something that I see uh, quite often. And um, I'm the director of student medical education at our site. And I'm a pretty lenient grader. I'm probably too lenient. But if you're disrespectful with a patient, it doesn't matter what state they're in, you'll fail your rotation and maybe even fail out of school. Um, I'm very strict about these types of things. Um, otherwise, I'm pretty lenient, but uh, taking care of patients is important. It's a big responsibility. So when patients can no longer exercise reason, memory, deliberation, does their human dignity also diminish? I'm going to argue that their dignity and value remain unchanged. I'd like to make the claim regarding human dignity specifically that all humans have inherent dignity and infinite worth regardless of their capacities. But what could ground such a belief? Uh, one of my favorite things about working with medical students is, uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, folks who are in Gen Z as well as young millennials often do have a great sense that, uh, of equality. So I think that's something I really like about my students. I, I see that that generation cares about that quite a bit. And I agree. I agree with them. But what, is, what grounds our equality? Because... We're not equal in size, strength, intelligence, socioeconomic status. We're not equal in number of atoms. There's no physical thing that grounds our equality. So how do we say that we're equal in value or dignity? So here I'd like to discuss the Christian position on human dignity. I find it both uh, beautiful and compelling. So many theologians will point to uh, Genesis 127, 
when we start to discuss human dignity. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So men and women are alike, men and women alike are created in the image of God. But the Bible never actually tells us what that means. Um, scripture doesn't explicitly say this. So we turn to uh, theological and philosophical considerations regarding this. And there are a lot of different views here. So one of them uh, is uh, our what's called prelapsarian righteousness. So that uh, before the fall, we were righteous and God is righteous and we're created in the image of God at that time in terms of our righteousness and then post-lapsarian after the fall, we lose that sense of righteousness and are no longer created in the image of God. But if you take the Bible seriously and continue to read Genesis 9-6, you'll see that that's false. Okay? Uh, some think it's functional, and this is a very popular view, that we are uh, God's representatives who govern his creation. Okay? Um, or that we're uh, relational. God is relational, perhaps, in the Trinity, and we, too, are relational, and we have relationship with God and all of this. Although some of these things may be true, I think they miss the point. For we must ask how we have these capacities to do these things in the first place. The classical answer is we have these capacities in light of having a rational soul. And it's our rational soul that we are especially made in the image of God. And this would be consistent with the thoughts of um, St. Augustine, Boethius, Aquinas, and many others. Augustine says, man's excellence consists in the fact that God made him in his own image by giving him a rational soul, which rises him above the beasts of the field. Okay, so I'm a neurologist, and you may find it very surprising that I believe in the soul, uh, you know, uh, something so uh, antiquated as the soul. You know, hasn't neuroscience done away with the concept of the soul? So in the, I don't know how much history you learn in, in medical school, but neuroscience really takes off in the 19th century. So in the ninth, you, you just kind of, you, you get out of the, the phase of phrenology, and, uh, which is a pseudoscience, and then you start having neuroscience starting to take off in the 19th century. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys know some of these folks, the medical students, so like Pierre-Paul Broca. So we think of a Broca's aphasia. Right now I'm using expressive language. Right now, uh, I am using my inferior frontal lobe on the left as I communicate to you. So that's Broca's area. And then uh, as you're listening to me, you're using receptive language. And that's the superior temporal lobe, Wernicke's area. So by Carl Wernicke. So they're contemporaries uh, in the 19th century. And they discover that language resides within uh, the left hemisphere in this Parasylvian region, okay? So that's uh, a lot of the 19th century. We learn a lot there. We also learn about motor and sensory function from people like um, John Hewlings Jackson. And then the 20th century, uh, we learn quite a bit as well. So we learn about vision from bullet wounds um, to the back of the head during World War I with Gordon Holmes. Uh, neurophysiology, we learn a lot in neurophysiology from Charles Sherrington, John Eccles, and we learn so much uh, during this time. And then uh, the famous neurosurgeon, uh, Wilder Penfield, also confirms uh, quite a bit about the human brain and its uh, different functions. So uh, he's one of the pioneers of the Montreal procedure in which uh, someone may have intractable epilepsy or they have a brain tumor and you need to uh, go in and resect part of the brain or you need to uh, you know, resect uh, the nidus of epileptiform discharges or epileptiform activity. So you, you, take the, you put them to sleep, you take the skull off, 
Uh, and then uh, you go in there and uh, with a plan to excise things. You take things out, right? But you wake the patient up for this, okay? Uh, pain, there's no pain receptors inside of the brain, so they don't feel any pain with this. And uh, so you wake them up and you stimulate certain parts of the brain to make sure that you don't cut out any delicate cortex. And Penfield saw that when he stimulated certain areas of the brain, certain things would occur. A person would feel sensation when the postcentral gyrus was stimulated. When the precentral gyrus was stimulated, the person may move. Uh, and when the lateral temporal lobe is stimulated, the person has flashbacks, they have memories. Okay? So we start to see that language resides within the brain, or the capacities for language reside within the brain. Memories you can stimulate, and many other things. And then in the 21st century, you have functional MRIs coming about, um, and those also show us many things. So uh, they claim that they've localized mental states to brain regions. Mental states are things like sensations, emotions, thoughts, beliefs, desires, and acts of the will, that these things have all been localized to specific brain regions. It's not entirely true. Um, I won't get too much into that. Um, okay, so... Uh, Descartes, Rene Descartes, who uh, I think in 1641, he wrote the Sixth Meditation, and uh, he has this theory about the soul, which has been very impactful throughout time and, and has often been the target of our talks about this stuff. Um, so he thinks that uh, mental states reside within an immaterial substance, a soul or a mind, and this interacts with the body. These are two different substances that, that interact with each other. But entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity. That's Occam's razor. Okay, so an example would be, um, you know, um, I don't know, if uh, someone has epilepsy and, um, I'll give a different example. Let's say you're riding through uh, campus and uh, you crash your bike and, uh, you know, you, it's a tough fall. Someone runs over and say, hey, are you okay? And you say, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, you, you hit your head and... Uh, you hit your head, but you didn't sustain any injuries. And you say, well, how didn't you sustain any injuries? And you say, well, uh, my helmet protected me, which of course is true, and my guardian angel protected me. Uh, some may uh, claim that the guardian angel would be superfluous. Now, I'm not going to debate that, uh, especially with the sisters here. Uh, maybe the guardian angel reminded you to uh, put your helmet on. Okay. All right. So... Um, so, if mental states are explained by the brain, then is the soul superfluous? So, many neuroscientists would say yes and endorse some form of reductive physicalism in which the mind is identical to the brain. They are one and the same thing, two words for the same thing. So, your mind is just a kind of glob of gelatinous material between your ears that weighs about 3.3 pounds. Okay? Uh, it's a claim that there's, uh, humans are purely material. There is no immaterial component to our being. Specifically, there is no immaterial mind or soul. In alignment with modern science, matter is purely quantitative. It can be measured. It has mass and takes up space, and when reduced to physical base properties, there's no qualitative components to matter, things like taste, smell, color. Okay? There's no intentionality to matter. There's no goal-directedness. And, of course, there's no subjective experience within matter. There's nothing like it. There's nothing what it's like to be a water bottle or a water molecule. There's no subjective experience. However, there are many, many arguments. So this sounds like, at first glance, that this is like a really good argument, perhaps, for physicalism. But it's not. Um, there are many arguments in philosophy of mind, which I won't go into. I give a different talk on this matter. But... Um, 
there are many uh, arguments in philosophy against this position because humans have subjective, qualitative, and intentional properties. Matter does not have these properties. Therefore, a person cannot be purely material. So if matter doesn't have the properties that we have, then we can't be purely material. So there's many arguments uh, having to do with what philosophers call qualia, uh, subjective experience and intentionality and knowledge and many other things that um, kind of uh, are defeaters for physicalism. But anyways, um, Aristotle and Aquinas, they mean something very different by the soul. Okay? They don't mean what Descartes means, that it's a separate immaterial substance mysteriously interacting with a human body. They held a different view. And indeed, they held a very different philosophy of nature entirely. So um, Aristotle, I think one of the easiest ways to understand him is, is maybe uh, when you start with what's called metaphysics, his uh, four causes. So uh, there, to explain any one thing, you have to give four explanations to give a sufficient explanation of that particular thing. So trying to like, so this table here, I'm going to pretend this table is made out of wood, okay? It is not made out of wood, but I'm going to. So there's the material cause, okay? What the thing is made out of, we'd say wood. There's the formal cause, okay? And that would refer to the structure, shape, or organization of the thing. So it's, uh, it's like rectangular, it has four legs, that kind of stuff. There's the efficient cause, that which brings the table about. So you could say a carpenter, but this was uh, made, uh, maybe uh, someone got it from Ikea and put it together. Um, and uh, then there's a final cause. What's the purpose of the thing? So it's to study at or to eat at or something like that. So to explain anything, you have to give these four causes for that particular thing to give a full explanation for it. So Aristotle uh, believed in something called form, which uh, it's that which directs, organizes, informs, and unifies the matter of a thing to make it the thing that it's supposed to be. And he also uh, thought that things displayed final causality, that all things in nature work toward the purpose. They have teleology. Okay, so there's purpose in nature. So um, the soul on this view with uh, Aquinas as well as Aristotle is just a type of form. It, the soul is that which directs, organizes, informs, and unifies the matter of a living thing to become that which it's intended to be. And all living things have a soul. And in having a form, we have, uh, that explains our qualitative properties and intentionality in humans. That would be consistent with humans having a form, okay? And that having a form or a soul permits final causality. So the soul is not a separate immaterial substance mysteriously interacting with a material body. It's not a byproduct or an emergent property of the brain or an emergent entity of the brain. It's the first principle of life and those things which live. So um, I think one of the good things is like the symbolic language of Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So it's the first principle in life of those things which live. It gives life to a thing. Okay? It's what separates an animate from an inanimate object is the soul. So humans have a rational soul which gives us the capacity to reason and will. And the intellect and will, according to um, Aquinas, is immaterial. And he gives philosophical reasons why our intellect and will have to be immaterial. And these capacities designate us as being created in the image of God. Okay? So that's the image of God. Now, what implications does this have for physicians? Okay? All right. It has many implications. 
So that which is immaterial cannot be physically corrupted and thus survives the death of the body. And this is great news for physicians, okay? Um, you know, physical corruption is inevitable. All of our patients eventually die, okay? There's limits to our ability to heal patients, especially in particular disease states, okay? So there's sometimes that the doctor is out of options. We can't, we can't do anything more physically for the patient, especially in many conditions within my own field. But this truth reminds me that through God's grace, I can still bring about healing. So I had this one lady who was um, in her late 80s, and she had a terminal illness. And um, she had very severe depression. And I, I talked to her about this in the office for a long time. And um, so I tried to encourage her, and she, she told me that she was Catholic, but she had given up the faith maybe decades ago, and no longer attended uh, mass or participated or prayed or did any of these things. So I gave my talk. I have a talk that I give people, uh, only when appropriate, you know, only when appropriate, uh, if, if they want to hear the talk. But um, my talk is um, really uh, is to pursue the sainthood, that even when our physical bodies are failing and many things are failing, we can still pursue being a saint or being Christ-like. That's what that means. So I talked to her about it for a while, and then I had no idea what happened, you know? She, she left the office. I never saw her again. But about six months later, maybe a little bit more than that, I got a note from her daughter in the mail. And um, it was a thank you letter. She said that in the last six months of her mother's life, she... Uh, went to Mass on a nearly daily basis. She joined a woman's prayer group at the church and that her depression got significantly better and that those last months of her life were the most meaningful of her entire life. Now, most of the time, I don't hear anything back, but that was just like encouraging to me to continue to do it, that I could still, through God's grace, bring about healing even though physical corruption was inevitable. Okay, So remember that the soul has a divine purpose to know and to love God. Also, please know that unity with the Lord often occurs through suffering. And at the end of life, there can be unexpected beauty at the end of this earthly life. Okay? A second point is that humans who cannot display rationality due to damage to their brain, or for some other reason, still have a rational soul. It's just certain potentials cannot be actualized due to their physical condition. So patients with neurodegenerative conditions, traumatic brain injury that cause disorders of consciousness, intellectual impairment, and, and some of my patients that have developmental delays and epilepsy who are nonverbal. Um, remember that the soul is not the mind, like Descartes says, okay? So Brian, in this case, you know, he's losing his abilities to exercise rationality, but he still has a rational soul. And these potentials may remanifest if treatment is successful. Okay? Another point is that all humans are created in the image of God, and thus all have inherent dignity. And this transcends race, religion, socioeconomic status, intelligence, gender, age, those at the very earliest stages of life and those at the very latest stages of life are created in the Imago Dei. So we have established the grounds for human dignity. And having a rational soul, we are especially created in the image of God. 
And this informs our ethics, that is, how we treat others, especially those who are incapacitated. Okay? All right, so let's get back to Brian, okay? So where we last left off, Brian's cognitive capacities were quickly diminishing, and he was having uh, frequent focal motor seizures, okay? Um, I loaded him with a third anti-seizure medication, Depakote, and uh, his seizures reduced to two to five an hour, uh, and that was during day two of his hospitalization. Uh, I think it was day two or day three, I can't recall. I repeated a lumbar puncture because I needed to send additional spinal fluid uh, to the Mayo Clinic to test for autoimmune etiologies, okay? Because um, this is what I suspected was the case, that perhaps this was an autoimmune etiology, okay? So uh, that's when the uh, immune system uh, kind of attacks the body, attacks an organ, Okay. So I repeated the uh, lumbar puncture, and uh, there was a mild, uh, a a little bit of uh, inflammation, uh, what we call lymphocytic pleocytosis in this case, but just a little bit of inflammation. Uh, I rechecked for herpes simplex virus, because here the frontal lobes and temporal lobes are primarily involved, which is an indicator that it could be HSV, but HSV doesn't really look like that. So, um, but you can have an initial false positive, so it ought to be rechecked in a few days. And then I sent the autoimmune labs, which were going to take 10 days or so to come back from the Mayo Clinic. So you send a, from the serum and from the cerebral spinal fluid to see if you can get an antibody, a protein that's attacking the brain that may be causing this. But Brian kept getting worse. So despite me um, giving him, as on three anti-seizure medicines, I add midazolam, which is a benzodiazepine. Um, but despite this, he continues to get worse and his... Um, right leg is continuously convulsing now. Um, we call that, you know, and he's still able to speak. He's still, still able to communicate, but his leg is, is, it doesn't show up on EEG. For EEG to show a seizure sometimes, depending on the location, you need six to 10 centimeters squared brain activity uh, for it to show up on there. So it's a clinical diagnosis. So his leg is just, you know, convulsing. So we call that epilepsia partialis continua. And uh, that's, that's a bad sign. It often means that anti-seizure medicines are not going to cut it. I'd already started him on steroids. I'd already started him on IVIG, which is another medicine. Um, so uh, we decide to intubate uh, Brian. And uh, we start him on a midazolam drip, so a benzodiazepine drip at a dose that would be a general anesthetic. And uh, his seizures go from 2 to 5 an hour to 12 an hour after I do that. And they last two minutes each. Okay, despite being on levetiracetam, lecosamide, valproic acid, midazolam, IVIG, and methylprednisolone. So this is getting bad fast. So then I added ketamine, uh, which is uh, at the time we had to get approval from the state board to administer that medicine. I had to physically administer the medicine. Um, I had to stand in his room with a vial and just press my thumb down over an hour, and then someone would give me another one because we weren't allowed to put it in a pump. So I just had to like sit in there doing this, um, which was uh, something else. And then we got approval, and then we can put it in, you know, we could, we could then give it as a continuous infusion. That was, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, it's not going too well with the midazolam drip, so I switch him to propofol, and I, I get him into burst suppression pattern a little bit here. So this is uh, uh, where you try to suppress the brain activity to where it's fairly flat on the EEG. And then you allow some bursts of cerebral activity right here. And uh, this is to decrease the metabolism of the brain to stop the process. Okay, so this uh, 
maybe help for 24 hours or so. Okay. Um, but then he started having 13 seizures an, uh, an hour again the next day. And he was developing significant bradycardia. So things were getting worse. Okay. So one of the hardest parts of being a physician is the constant decision-making that we have to make. Okay? It's constant decision-making. And the decisions that we make, they're not trivial. They have major implications. They're complex. And they often determine the outcome of our patients. So take Brian's situation here. What's entailed in making decisions for Brian? There's a lot that's entailed, okay? And uh, many people, you know, you guys, most of you are medical students. I mean, Aristotle thought that, um, you know, our knowledge depends on our sense experience. So what we sense becomes knowledge, okay? And, and you all have to learn this in medical school. So um, how information gets into the body, right? So... Um, I don't know, my, my cell phone's in my pocket, it vibrates. Um, you have some uh, persinian corpuscles start to vibrate. Uh, and then this, you know, sends axons to the dorsal root ganglia and then to the, what is it, the uh, dorsal column. And then that goes up to the cunate and uh, gracile nuclei and then crosses over and becomes the medial longitudinal fasciculase and then goes to the VPL and then it goes to the post-central gyrus, and you're like, and then it goes to other areas, and you're like, oh, my cell phone is vibrating, okay? Um, and that, now you have the knowledge that your cell phone is vibrating. Uh, and, then, and then it goes to, uh, so that it becomes knowledge, and then you have to contemplate, you know, maybe your cell phone's vibrating now, but I'm talking, you don't want to look rude, and you're like, should I answer it? So now you're making decisions, it goes to the will, and now you're deciding if you're going to do it. So, and this is how things come in, right? So you smell coffee or the chicken over there, and that goes through a certain pathway too, right? So you have the little olfactory nerves and, and your mucosa, and that goes through the cribiform plate to the olfactory bulb. You have the mitral and tough cells. And then, and then that goes all back there. So like, well, you guys need to know this for your boards. You yeah. need to know this for your boards, okay? Sure. So there's all these different pathways in which information gets into our brain, okay? And then that, uh, from that, we can form memories. We can produce internal images, we can unify that sense experience, and then uh, this knowledge and intellectual abilities and reasoning is then delivered to the will, and we can decide upon things, okay? So it's very complex. There's a lot that's involved in, with free will and decision-making, okay? So, I mean, with Brian, it's like, you know, tons of decisions. So, you know, what anti-seizure medicine should I pick? What's the proper dose for loading? What's the proper maintenance dose? And in emergencies, you can't look this stuff up. You need to know it. Um, you know, rational polytherapy. You guys have to learn pharmacology, right? Well, you need to know it. I mean, if someone's seizing, it's in it. You know, you have all these anti-seizure medicines. Most of them work on sodium channels. It makes no sense to just keep giving a bunch of medicines that all work on sodium channels. You may want to go after AMPA receptors. You may want to go after NMDA receptors. You may want to go after GABA. There's all these different areas that uh, you need to target, but you need to know these things. So knowledge is really important for physicians. Then the knowledge and wherewithal of how do I talk to the family? How do I communicate prognosis? What words do I choose? How do I choose them? Um, you know, how can I be realistic and optimistic? Or is it time not to be optimistic? So there's so many of these decisions. So through reason and deliberation, I act or not act, choose this or choose that, all with some good end in mind. This is what we mean by free will or freely choosing. 
And in having these capacities, I am responsible for the decisions that I make. So you all are, most of you are medical students, so you know, you're responsible for the decisions you make and you have to make a lot of decisions. What specialty do I want to do? Um, how about board prep materials? So uh, what, what are you gonna pick? USMLE World, uh, what are you gonna do? Uh, what rotations are you gonna pick if you have the freedom to pick them? Uh, what residency do I, do I wanna do? Or where do I wanna go for residency? Limited decision there, right? Go through the match process. Uh, but let's say you desire that to be accepted into a competitive residency. I, I talked to a bunch of people, they wanna go into orthopedics. That, that may be the hardest thing to get into, but you guys are, I'm sure everyone in this room can do it, you know? It's Vanderbilt. So, um, but let's say you neglect to study for boards, you drink large quantities of alcohol, and you fail your boards, you spend most of your time at the CrossFit gym building up muscles so you can look good on Tinder, and then you, uh, you don't get the residency you desire, and then you blame extraneous factors for your failures, but you fail to see that you're the agent of your choices and that you are responsible for the outcomes. Also, you likely have a group B personality disorder, you know? <laughs> All right. Uh, so we believe that we freely choose and are responsible for our actions. Aquinas says, man has free will. Otherwise, counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain, right? There'd be no, if people did not have free will, there's no point in giving someone advice or punishing them for something that they have no control over whatsoever. Okay, all right, he goes on to say, you know, we're not like rocks that act without judgment. They just follow the laws of nature. We're not like sheep that just act by instinct alone. We act for reasons, okay? Now, there are many challenges to this in theology and philosophy and neuroscience. I'm just gonna focus on neuroscience here. Okay, so there was a, a famous experiment that was done in 1985, and there have been many similar experiences that are, uh, experiments that are equally bad. Um, since that time, but it has gained uh, a lot of attention. So this is a study in which uh, Benjamin Libet had uh, these uh, volunteers, these subjects, and he hooked them up to EEG, and I think he was probably monitoring the, um, uh, the supplementary motor cortex, uh, I would think, with what he's doing here. But um, So he hooks people up to EEG. So imagine everyone in this room, you're hooked up to an EEG, and he instructs his, uh, his participants, he says, you're gonna watch this clock, and uh, when you feel an urge to flex your wrist, I want you to make note of what time it was on the clock and you know, follow through with the wrist flexion. So don't think about it, don't plan it, but when you have an urge to flex your wrist, I want you to flex your wrist, and then remember at what time you experienced the urge to flex your wrist. Make sense? Okay, this is somehow a study on free will. Okay, um, so, the person has an urge uh, to flex their wrist and they go ahead, they, they, they comply with it, okay? And uh, let me show you, so this is what it looks like, okay? So um, they get the urge and the urge is uh, right here, it's called the intention to act. So the urge comes and then they flex their wrist. The flexion of the wrist is where it says action performance, okay? But uh, to, to Libet's uh, surprise, uh, there is this, uh, these question marks. There's this thing that precedes the intention to act, these question marks here. And uh, Benjamin Libet interprets this as uh, the brain has already decided 
before you even got the urge or the intention to flex your wrist, to flex your wrist. You couldn't have done otherwise, okay? Uh, you're, you're just kind of a puppet to your brain chemistry or your, the firing of neurons. So there's this, uh, the brain has already decided, then you have this urge or this conscious uh, intention to flex the wrist, but that's just an illusion. You, your brain's already decided, and then you're getting the cognitive uh, thoughts about it later, and then the action is performed, okay? Um, so, oh, ah, okay. So uh, there are some problems with this study. So number one, this is not a study on free will. So this, this is supposed to disprove the existence of free will, but this is not a study on free will. So it's going to be very hard to disprove it. Um, so let's say that um, I'm working with, uh, with Brian, and I did have medical students at that point, point. they were like worried about me because I was in this room infusing a medicine. And in that um, one week, I spent over 40 hours with just him. Um, and um, so my, you know, and let's say I get out of the room and I'm, I talk to my students. I say, you know what? I think all this decision-making that I have to do as a physician is what's really leading to physician burnout. I think that's it. And my students don't say anything, but they gather together. Let's say there's three of them. And they say, you know what? Let's help Dr. LaPena out. Let's run a study to see if this is true, if, if all the decision-making that he has to do is re really leading to his burnout. I don't know that they're doing the study, okay? And... Um, I notice that these three students are just following me around for a month. And um, I go into the bathroom, and they're there, and they're taking notes. And I'm like, what, what are you guys doing? Um, <laughs> you know, I go into the physician's lounge, and I, I grab a water or something. They're taking notes. I grab a scoop of potatoes, and they're taking notes. And I'm like, what are they doing? And then they present their data to me. And, uh, but all their data points are things like, there were 43 water bottles in the refrigerator, and you grabbed the seventh one. There were three urinals. You picked the middle one. Um, there were, uh, you know, I don't know how many potatoes would be in a thing. I don't know. But you picked uh, that one. And, uh, you know, we think X or Y or Z. I think I would be like, you know, I don't think that these, these actions that I've been doing, they require no thought, no deliberation, and have no consequences whatsoever. So in the study that the students did, they're not really capturing the essence of decision-making. And Libitz isn't either. I mean, subjects are passively responding to an urge to flex their wrist. It says very little about decisions and whether we have free will. Exercising free will requires reasoning. And Libet instructs his patients not to think, but rather to passively respond to an urge. And then after requesting his subjects to passively respond to an urge, he then concludes his subjects are passive to their urges, which is, you know, um, he then conflates urge to mean the same thing as decision-making. And then he makes a further step and generalizes this to all decisions. And all the studies on free will are very similar to this that I've looked at, but definitions are very important. If you want to do a study, say, on the efficacy of anti-seizure medicines and, um, you only recruit people in your study who have psychogenic non-epileptic attacks and then conclude, which, which is a mimic of seizures, but they're psychological in origin perhaps, but then you conclude that anti-seizure medicines are not efficacious for focal motor seizures, but you never actually studied that. It would just would make no sense to draw any conclusions. And then to generalize that further would just be another absurd step, okay? Okay. On a side note, urges just arise in us anyways, right? I mean, 
like an urge to sneeze or to urinate or to cough or to vomit or something like that, they just arise in us. Like I don't decide to have an urge. Now I may decide to act on an urge. I may have an urge or a desire to eat one more uh, spoonful of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, and then free will may come into play. I may decide whether or not to comply with that urge. I may veto that urge. And later experiments by Libitz determines that people can veto their urges and not comply with them. He, uh, and some have interpreted this as we don't have free will, we have free won't, which just really adds more to this confusion uh, amongst these <laughs> neuroscientists. So um, anyways, okay. All right. The other thing is the uh, readiness potential. You know, why conclude that that is the brain making a decision? Multiple studies say that, you know, this is maybe just an intention to act or the natural ebb and flow of brain activity or just getting ready or anticipating a decision. There's no evidence whatsoever that this is the brain unconsciously deciding. Okay. And the last point on this, do neurological processes even lead to decisions? Uh, they are certainly, you know, or, or do neural tissue, can a neural tissue make a decision? Um, you know, they are certainly associated and necessary for decision-making. But it's another thing to say that the neural tissue makes a decision. Neural tissue do doesn't decide anything. They have no inherent intentionality. Humans, uh, human beings, they deliberate, they decide, they act, not their brains. Okay, so uh, this is, uh, he's committing what's called the muriological fallacy. So neuroscience aims to identify brain processes and their microbiological and chemical substratum necessary for certain human capacities, not to make metaphysical claims regarding human nature. Okay. All right. So um, neurological impairment. So um, one, one thing here is uh, if free will requires the intellect, then do people who suffer from intellectual disabilities not have free will? So I have all these very sweet patients who have um, genetic abnormalities and they have intractable epilepsy. And um, some of them are like Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and some of them are mute and they, you know, um, they're, they're, they're limited in their rational capacities. But first, remember that one still has a rational soul even if they cannot exercise rationality, including making free choices. Second, the will is about this is a conversation I had with um, someone who had become closer with, uh, Father uh, Anselm, um, who's out in California. But we've been discussing this a bit, and um, I think the second point here is, is the will is about more than choosing between alternatives. The patients above may be more limited in deliberation than everyone in this room. Some cannot exercise their intellectual capacities due to developmental delays, immaturity, injury, or disease. However, there is more to the will. The will is teleological. That is, it's directed beyond itself at its highest good, which is God. For some, freedom may not be a choice between options, which may or may not be present, I'm not quite sure, but rather resting in the will's uh, telos, or final end, which is God. And maybe this is why my patients with intellectual impairments radiate love and make everyone in my office happier. So um, there's kind of a higher form of free will, I think, okay? All right, so let's get back to Brian again. So when we last left off, Brian's having 13 electrographic seizures uh, an hour. He's developing severe bradycardia. 
He's on, uh, I have him on uh, levetiracetam, lacosamide, valproic acid, propofol, topiramate, parampamil, and ketamine. So he's on seven anti-seizure medications. And um, I had him on methylprednisolone, uh, high doses, and, uh, which is a steroid to try to decrease inflammation. And I had him on IVIG, which I had to do kind of out of necessity because uh, we couldn't get him ready for plasma exchange, which is where you take the plasma out, which has the assumed antibodies in it, and then you replace it with new plasma. Um, so that's what I wanted to do initially, but I had to get him set up for that. And uh, so I put him on plasma exchange. And then with his severe bradycardia, I had to consult cardiology who put a temporary cardiac um, pacer in uh, because I was about to add another medicine that could worsen his heart. Okay, so I ended up putting um, Brian into a pentobarbital coma, which I don't think had ever been done at the hospital that I work at. So I was the first one to do it. So there's like a lot of people in the room watching this. And I was like, what are you doing? Um, so, um, so, you know, I, um, you know, I, I infused the pentobarbital. And um, the goal here is, again, to get in, into birth suppression uh, so that the EEG will look like this. So I wanted to try to get him back into birth suppression. The propofol wasn't doing it, but uh, pentobarbital is a, is a sure thing with this. So... Um, so I had him teed up for that. So I did. I gave it to him, and uh, he went right into birth suppression. And I said, oh, you know, it's wonderful. And then in five minutes, he had a breakthrough seizure, and I was just like, oh, man. So, uh, so then I gave him a, another loading dose, and then I put him into uh, not birth suppression, suppression. So this is what an EEG looks like in someone who meets criteria for brain death. Uh, but this is just from pentobarbital here. So I gave him a second loading dose, and his EEG looked like this for several days. There, were, there was no visible cerebral activity, which is okay. Um, in these circumstances, sometimes I'll go for 90 to 100% suppression of the EEG background um, to kind of shut down the brain. Okay. So uh, we refer to uh, Brian's clinical condition. You're probably wondering what's, what's wrong with him. Um, what's going on with Brian? So... We refer to this clinical presentation as NORS, which is New Onset Refractory Status Epilepticus. It's exceedingly rare. It's not a specific diagnosis. It's a clinical presentation. However, testing from the serum and cerebral spinal fluid that was sent to the Mayo Clinic confirmed that this was autoimmune encephalitis. So, so you, were, you were right. Was that, yeah, was you? Okay, you were right. So you would have known this from day one. It would have been great. We could have used you. So, um, so Brian's immune system was attacking his brain. I continued to discuss uh, care with family, his nurses, and other physicians. Uh, this was actually my fourth time uh, treating this condition. Three times it was in children. Um, I think all three of them had what's called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, and then in one adult who we never discovered what the cause was. Um, all of them survived, and most of them had um, good outcomes. So I maintained hope for Brian, even when things looked bad. Okay. Uh, you know, only humans have hope. This is unique to human beings. It's a desire for something you have not yet acquired or obtained, but with the expectation of receiving it or the anticipation of receiving it. So for many, this is uh, maybe a sports team. You know, you root for, for your sports team to win it all, right? So my, my uh, grandmother, who, who uh, passed in 2020, 
She was a Red Sox fan all of her life, and she was born after 1918 when they had last won a World Series. And um, so finally, you know, the Red Sox win in 2004, and she was such a committed fan. She would sit there with her notebook in the same chair, and she would write every at-bat and every pitch and every statistic, and, like, the house was just filled with these notebooks, and she, she loved it. She had hope that they would finally win a World Series, and then, of course, they did. Um, but how much more hope did she have in those that she loved, uh, that they would obtain their highest good? And she was such a, a woman of faith. Uh, you know, we hope for good grades, for a good residency, for a good spouse, and many other goods. We hope for our patients, those who are under our care. We miss time away from our families, time away from our beds, time away from exercise, going out with friends, and much more. Um, you know, in that one week, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have kids at home, my wife, and they didn't see me that much that week. I was watching his continuous EEG monitoring. I was at his bedside. I was doing a lot of things. Uh, but without wavering, I had optimism that he would survive and even do well. But Brian remained in a coma for nearly a month, and several attempts were made to lift him out of a pentobarbital coma. Each time was unsuccessful. He had been tried on 10 anti-seizure medicines, plasma exchange, IV steroids, uh, IVIG, and two doses of rituximab. He now had a tracheostomy in place, which is uh, when uh, you can only have a tube going down the mouth for so long, you have to put it through, uh, through the neck, the trachea, tracheostomy. And he was being artificially fed through a gastric tube. And uh, it was uh, maybe day... 25 or 26, I can't recall completely, but I was trying to get him off pentobarb again. And um, I went to his bedside and I examined him and I gave painful stimulus. Nothing. Nothing. Um, I had him on a very low dose. And uh, I still wasn't, I didn't lose determination, you know, but I, I started to, I left the, uh, the ICU and I started to walk down the stairs. And uh, then I just kind of had this oceanic tug uh, to go back to, his, back to his room, you know. In these uh, moments where I just feel absolutely compelled to act in a certain way, you know, in these moments, it's I who moves, but it's God who moves me. And in this paradox is the pinnacle of freedom. And I, I felt this just tug to go back up to his bedside. And my nurse practitioner, uh, she was with me. Um, I said, you know, we, we got to go back up. Well, you just saw him. You know, I, I, we got to go back up. So I went back to his room, and I walked up to his bed, and I said, Brian, open your eyes. Opened his eyes. And started following commands. So he, he awoke. Um, now, it wasn't without difficulty. You know, he still had some intermittent seizures, um, and then, you know, imagine losing a month of your life and just waking up and you're traked and you're pegged and you've lost most of your muscle mass. Uh, he couldn't move his legs. Uh, his feet were paralyzed. He was in a rough situation. You know, that's a difficult circumstance to be in. Uh, but he was determined. Uh, he too maintained hope. Uh, Brian's now, he's off all anti-seizure medications. He's off all immunotherapy. 
He's had a completely full recovery. He's back to owning his business, and he's doing great. Uh, I would say, you know, we always carry the trauma that we experience, so that's still part of him, and it still affects him. There's still fear that something like this could happen again to him. Um, it makes one realize the fragile nature of human beings. But he had a wonderful outcome, and he has a new, I think, a better perspective on life now. Um, and it took a, a heck of a lot of determination for him to do what he did to get better. Um, so he's an amazing person. Now, not all outcomes are like this. You know, I could give you stories where I had hope for patients who unexpectedly died. And uh, I think you guys, as, as student doctors, and when you become doctors, you know, there's going to be circumstances where you do absolutely everything right, but the outcome is still bad, okay? And the person dies. Uh, and it never gets easier. Um, but my prayer for you is a higher form of hope, hope as a theological virtue infused by the Holy Spirit with God as its desired end. So we have this hope for us, and we have this hope for uh, those we love and care for. So I'll just read this passage here, and I'll be done. Uh, this is from Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks. Was it an NDA or not? It was not. So... It was, um, at first I didn't believe it because oftentimes when I send these panels, we get what are called GAD antibodies that come back positive, which are present in a lot of the population, seen in people with like type 1 diabetes and other conditions. So, um, yeah, I thought it was, um, I thought, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. Most of the people with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis have normal MRIs, so I didn't think it was going to be that. I wasn't quite sure. And he's a bit old, and it's usually in women, oftentimes with ovarian teratomas. So um, it ended up being positive GAD65 antibodies, which is typically associated with a condition called stiff person syndrome, um, which is an interesting um, disease. But um, uh, we talked to the neuroimmunologist at the Mayo Clinic about it, and the levels were like, I don't know, several thousand times the upper limit of normal from both the CSF and the serum. And they had had uh, similar cases. So uh, they felt strongly that, the, uh, that it was the, the culprit. So, yeah. There's a popular book on anti-NMDA that you, you guys might enjoy. Uh, I, I didn't think I was going to like it, but it's Brain on Fire. You know, you know the yeah. yeah. I didn't think I was going to like it. I kind of resisted, but everybody kept telling me to read it. And, and once I read it, I was like, wow, that, it really is a compelling story. So yeah. if you want to read that, yeah, it's, it would be it, a, you know, a, a cousin to this, this patient's disease. Yeah, just several months after that, a young lady came in with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis and presented exactly how the uh, individual in that book presented with uh, psychosis, psychosis and, and yeah. So that, that was, that was a, a long road too and she relapsed and we had to do it all over again and, but she had a good outcome as well. But my question, if you don't mind me sure. asking one, is uh, can you talk about hope and despair maybe? Um, you talked about the theological virtue of hope Yeah. and you also talked about times when we as physicians um, find such difficult outcomes that we might lose that hope. And tell how, how do you yeah. process that? How do you contrast this going from despair maybe to maintaining hope? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, yeah, that's one of the hardest parts about being a physician is 
even the last week I was on, I had a young young man uh, come in with uh, tuberculosis meningitis, and uh, which I had never seen. And you know, we we treated, uh, we did everything right, and then he just got severe vasospasm from meningeal irritation, and you know, just wiped out his cortex and uh, and died from it. And uh, real young, you know, I had to FaceTime with his family. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, so it's, it, it's difficult. Now, I think it's important, and especially for the students, that you have a good support system. You have a good community of people because being a doctor is really difficult. So, you know, I have a, fortunately, you know, I'm at a Catholic hospital and they put the neurologist with the clergy for some reason. Uh, but I'm so grateful for that. So my neighbor right next to me is uh, Father Duncan. So, yeah, I just have a group of, of people that I can sit down with and talk to. It's, it's important just not to bottle up all these things. Despair is going to occur. And uh, it's hard to transition from despair uh, to hope. Uh, you need the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. Uh, Holy Spirit working through you through God's grace. And... Um, but God often uh, delights in using intermediaries. So oftentimes he'll use uh, other people in your life to encourage you, to give you some scripture to read, um, to in- just invite you over, to go out for a beer. Uh, these things are really important. So you need to find a good community of people. You know, for me, I have a good spouse, children, you know. So I have all this support. You need that. You need that, you know. Our, our uh, psyche is fragile and often goes in directions we don't want it. And uh, I don't think that alone, we, we often don't have the capacity to, uh, to get it back to where it needs to be. So we suffer from burnout and uh, depression and anxiety, and we need good folks to, to help us with that. So that, that's what I would say, you know, a good support system, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, all those types of things. Thank you. Yeah. And for your boards, for the TB meningitis, Abducens, nerve palsy, and bad SIADH. I don't know if you're thinking had that. Oh, yeah. Really bad. Yeah. Sodium is a 104. Yes. Nerve. Can't go laterally with their ass. That would be your board So that's exactly what, yeah, his sodium dropped. I was going in to uh, repeat a lumbar puncture, relieve some pressure. And um, I walked in, you know, I always look at their pupils before I do an LP, and they were blown. And uh, it was too late. So, yeah. Yes, sir. So back to more the philosophical. Sure. Uh, at the beginning, you said that form uh, by Aristotle is not an emergent property of the brain. Can you explain what you mean by that? Oh no, I was saying that the the soul or um, so the soul or the mind is not an emergent property of the brain. So there are different theories in philosophy of mind. So there's um, physicalism, which posits that. Uh, there are different forms of physicalism. So uh, one of them, uh, I think, common amongst neurologists, but it's dead in philosophy, would be type-type identity theory, in which the brain is the mind. They're one and the same thing. And then there's uh, functionalism, uh, behaviorism, and eliminative materialism. So there's some different views within philosophy of mind. Um, And then some people find that there are convincing arguments that none of these things can be true because of the capacities that we have as human beings. So then, uh, from there, some people say, okay, well, what if the brain generates the mind? So, hey, the brain's really complex. There's 86 billion neurons. Who's to say what it can't do? 
So from there, uh, you get positions like um, epiphenomenalism, uh, which is uh, a view in which, uh, from the complexity of the brain, you kind of have these mental states that are off, they kind of shoot off of it. So like, uh, kind of like uh, my exhaust uh, fumes come out of the back of my tailpipe. Uh, so the mind or the mental states arise out. But because they're immaterial, and an immaterial thing can't interact with a physical thing, as some claim, uh, it's just an inert byproduct. It can't do anything. It can't, mental states that we form have no uh, causal efficacy. They can't do anything. Um, but this doesn't sound right uh, at all. So, you know, the thought that it's raining outside causes me to extend my arm and get an umbrella so that I don't get wet. That's a mental state causing me to do a physical thing and things like that. So epiphenomenalism has, uh, I think, intractable problems with it. Uh, there are many other examples. Now, some think that um, from the brain emerges the mind or the soul from the complexity as a new substance. So um, this would be like emergent dualism, like William Hasker would endorse this view. Uh, but one may want to ask, well, how? How does the brain do it? Well, it's like, well, it's just really complex. But is that a good answer? I mean, um, so what is in the, uh, what's in the effect must be in the cause. So let's say I'm walking down a street, I'm going back to my hotel, and a homeless man asked me for $20. But all I have in my pocket is three pebbles. You know, there's no way from those three pebbles I'm going to be able to give this man $20. Uh, so uh, what's in the effect? or what's in the cause, the pebbles, <laughs> is this not going to get me the effect of money, right? This is not going to happen. Likewise, the neurons of our brain that lack awareness, lack intentionality, lack subjective experience, lack qualitative experience or qualitative measures are not going to get you that. But you go, well, it's very because there's 86 billion of them. But if I have 86 billion pebbles, it's not going to get me any closer to $20. So I don't find any of these kind of the brain produces uh, the mind or produces the soul as another substance or as an epiphenomenon very convincing. Uh, so I don't think that the brain can generate the mind. Yes? How does like self-referential thought with like default mode network or like aspects of the like, oh. cortex play into that though? Oh, is this like where like uh, people just kind of like do things without thinking or whatever? Or like the brain being able to like acknowledge and refer to like the concept of like its own self or like oh oh yeah um yeah so like yeah self-awareness or whatever you know i'm not quite sure um i don't think the the brain in its structure would be able to do that i think that would be some type of capacity of the soul um but i haven't thought about that before so i'd have to wrestle with that for a while um but i don't think the brain in terms of uh, if you take what's called a mechanistic view of nature in which it's only complex um, physical molecules in motion interacting with each other. Uh, awareness just isn't present in that process. And if that's all there is, then there can be no like self-awareness or self, uh, whatever, however you termed it. So it doesn't seem to be possible to me um, that this yes, is not present in matter unless you redefine matter in a way uh, that, or substances in a way that Aristotle would in which the very concept of uh, nature is different and that all things are made of form and matter. And uh, this would be maybe a capacity of the form of the thing rather than the matter, which is the potential of the thing. So, I don't know. I'm uh, sorry.
<laughs> what else? Yes. This is a bit broad, so I apologize, but how does your understanding of all of this together with your neurology background sort of inform the way that you talk about quality of life with patients and like yeah. how that plays into even like your discussions around palliative care and when you yeah. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big question. Um, so, yeah, we got to be like really careful with quality of life things. A lot of people will uh, that that's huge in medicine. Everyone's just talking about quality of life. Well, you're not gonna have any quality of life. And a lot of times, what you hear when people are saying that is like your life isn't gonna be of any value anymore, which obviously we don't want to endorse, right? Um, so, quality of life is important. But when one doesn't have a quality of life, that doesn't have any influence on the person's dignity or anything like that. So we need to separate those things out. Uh, so that would be the first step. Um, as a neurologist, a lot of times uh, you see patients who have very, very severe diseases in which death seems inevitable. So uh, they have a large hemorrhage or a severe traumatic brain injury or something like that. And uh, there are some options, you know. You, tell by the, you can tell by the damage in the brain that the likelihood of any type of recovery is like um, where they're going to regain consciousness is extremely low, you know. It, it just doesn't seem possible they're ever going to regain consciousness. They're going to be in a coma until they die. So, um, you know, you explain that to the family. Uh, I often will show the pictures of brain MRIs and uh, explain it in detail of what I'm seeing. That really helps patients under, or the family understand what's going on. Um, I would say that, um, you know, trying to, it's more of a conversation with the family. You know, what were the person's wishes? You know, what would they want? If they didn't express their wishes, then let me tell you kind of as their power of attorney or something, what the most likely outcome is and if the person would want that particular outcome. Um, and then the family decides. You know, people are never under any obligation to, um, you know, have to be on burdensome, um, kind of unreasonable life-sustaining measures that only prolong the dying process. Like a lot of the things we do in medicine just prolongs the dying process. Um, and there's no obligation whatsoever for the patient to have to just prolong the dying process. And I do explain that to them. Um, and uh, I think usually they, they understand that and can make a, a good informed decision after everything's explained to them. Um, so you just have to like draw a lot of distinctions there. I hope I answered that question uh, to some extent, but yeah, I was trying to think if there's anything else that I would add to that. Yeah, so it's just um, overburdensome um, life-sustaining measures and it's not necessary to like being traked and pegged and uh, with no likelihood of ever regaining consciousness. They, the, the person still has full dignity and value but it's prolonging the dying process and they're not under any obligation to do that. And it's okay if the family desires for that person to be with the Lord. And I'm also respectful the other way. After I inform the person to the best of my ability, if they decide, say for example, we talked about this earlier, but they, they believe in miracles and God's going to heal the person. It's just my job to inform them of my experiences, what I've seen, and then I let them decide. Unless it's brain death. Brain death, we're under no obligation to the person's dead, so we're no, under no obligation to continue life-sustaining measures. Um, so first, we made 
the common that humans are the only animals that can experience hope. Yes. Uh, so if you could elaborate on the evidence for that statement and then comment on the evidence for or against a rational soul. So not necessarily a mortal versus immortal soul and not human animals, but a rational soul and not human animals. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert on animals, uh, you know, outside of humans. Um, so uh, I, I, I just can't think of a situation in which an animal would display hope. So, um, can you? Would be asked your dog if it wants to go for a walk. It gets excited. It goes to the door. It yeah. So I would. Something yeah. about it, either response to that um, stimulus or it. I wouldn't. Yeah, I don't think I'd refer to that as hope. Let's see how I defined it. So that would be maybe excitement. Um, yeah, I would say that would be something like excitement uh, for going for a walk, some type of instinctual response, uh, but I don't think that would be hope. So uh, trying to see where I... Yeah, the desire for something you have not yet acquired, but with the anticipation of receiving it. Um, yeah, so I don't know, you know, uh, maybe you can make an argument that... Uh, I don't know, the dog hopes to go on a walk or something like that. I'm not quite sure. I don't think I would. Uh, I, I would think it would be more instinctual, uh, more the response to kind of the natural inclinations of the dog, uh, you know, excitement. But I do think that dogs have a soul. Uh, so I think all living things have a soul. So a soul is just that which gives life to a living thing. So plants would have a soul and uh, any animal would have a soul. Um, it's just... Uh, you know, a dog would have, uh, what do they say, like a uh, sentient soul or something like that. Uh, I forgot what the term is. And then plants would have a vegetative soul and humans would have a rational soul. And the rational soul just means that we, well, we have intellect. Uh, humans are unique in that uh, we can do abstract thought and things like that. So uh, I can imagine in my uh, mind right now, um, you know, triangles. Uh, so I'll use sense. So an isosceles triangle, a scalene trial, and an equilateral triangle. Are those, those are all right, right? Okay, this is uh, jogging my memory here. So I can, uh, I can imagine all of these different triangles, and uh, animals can do this too, you know? Animals can probably imagine things. They have, they have, some of them have better memory than we do, right? And some humans can't imagine things. Yes, uh, but humans are unique in that we can abstract. So I can think of just triangularity uh, rather than just this or that particular triangle. I can form universal concepts about triangularity, such as like uh, all angles add to 180 degrees, there are three vertices, a triangle always has three sides. So these are like uh, displays of rationality, uh, abstraction. And then um, uh, I also have, uh, as, as part of the rational soul, I also have, uh, with the intellect, I can also decide on things so I can uh, choose this or that based off of reason rather than instinct. So I would say those are things that separate humans from animals, but I don't like study animals. Uh, I don't own any animals, so uh, I may not be the best person to say what an animal has or doesn't have, but uh, I would find it unlikely that they have hope or that they can do abstract thought or that they can, um, 
you know, uh, at least deliberate uh, to the extent that human beings deliberate.